right. Hey, welcome everybody. Love seeing all your smiling faces in here. So a special thank you and shout out to everybody who made the effort to come here and be here in person. Thank you for being here. If you're out there online, whenever, wherever you're joining us, welcome. Glad that you're here too. Um, I am looking forward to this message because I think God has a word for every single person here and every single person that will be listening online. And here's how I know this, because this last section um, in Luke 15 has so many lessons. And so uh, let me jump ahead. I'll stick to... Stick to what my plan was. Let's talk about it. Now, we've been, if you've been coming here for a while, you know this. If you've caught us online, you know this. We spent 10 months going through the book of Job, like chapter by chapter, almost verse by verse, and there were so many lessons to learn from that. But many of the lessons that we learned focused on the fact that the enemy, the devil, Satan, is relentless in the way that he comes after us. He will come after us all the time using our friends, using our culture, using our circumstances, using anything that he can to pursue us. And his pursuit is not good. It's not what we want. And we have learned, though, that he is absolutely relentless. Again, I'll just remind everybody, everybody knows this scripture. I think nearly everybody knows this scripture. 1 Peter 5, 8, be of sober spirit. Be on the alert, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Talk about that. I personally talk about that all the time because I'm very spiritual warfare-minded and and focused. But that's not an attractive scripture if you're trying to make the gospel of Jesus attractive to somebody. You're not going to say, you need to know Jesus because... The devil is prowling around like a roaring lion looking to devour you, and you don't want to be that one the lion devours. True, but I don't know how helpful that is in getting somebody to make the decision to give their life to Christ. There's a much better message, and it is the gospel message of Jesus, and that's what we're talking about here. The good news, really, the gospel, gospel just means good news. Do you know that? It means the same thing, and the good news is that Satan is not the only one who's relentless. I heard one amen, but she works here. There should be more amens when you hear that. Jesus tells these parables, and we're in Luke 15. So Luke chapter 15, if you have your Bible at home or here, get into Luke 15. We're going to start with verse 11, but I want to go back even a little bit before that. Jesus is telling these parables, and he's telling a series of three parables to these Pharisees who are giving him a hard time because he's eating with tax collectors and, and other various sinners and rabble and people that they would never in a million years hang out with. And here is Jesus eating with them when he turned down their own invitation for dinner. <clears throat> but these parables are designed to take these really um, complicated issues, complicated spiritual ideas, and make them relatable, make them something that people can, okay, I see how that works. We do that all the time when we say, for example, and it just makes it more relatable. And Jesus telling these parables is all about his passionate and relentless pursuit of those that the Father has given him. And we see that idea, Jesus himself talks about John chapter 6, verses 37 through 40, Read like this. I'll just read this section to you. Everything, this is Jesus speaking, everything that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I certainly will not cast out, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, 
but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everything he has given me, I will lose nothing, but will raise it up on the last day. And then verse 40. I think we have verse 40 up here. This is, this is a gospel snapshot right here. If all you take away is, is this verse, hear this. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. That is the essence of the gospel message of Christ. But that could be, from our standpoint, with 2,000 years of hindsight and Sunday school and church classes and reading our Bible and devotionals and all the things that we have access to and have had access to, that makes sense to us. We at least kind of understand the context. Think about if you were one of the people in the crowd, either the tax collectors and the sinners that Jesus was talking to, or better yet, the Pharisees and the scribes who were there who knew Scripture back and forth, and that was, that was their life, was to know the Holy Scriptures. But they heard that, and they had to go, I don't know about that. I'm not sure what he means, but if he means what I think he means, then that's heresy. And I certainly am not on board with it, so I don't know. So Jesus, again, he tells these three parables purposely to try and illustrate his point in a way that everybody in his audience is going to understand. So we see that. So our entire series, three-week series, so after 10 months, three weeks is a blink of an eye, right? Go back and catch the other ones online or through our, through our website or through YouTube. You can go back and catch the previous messages. There's only two others. This is the last one before we move into our next bigger series. But it's all going to be spent in Luke 15. So Luke 15 is a series of three parables, again, that Jesus tells in response to this challenge from the Pharisees. So in the first week, we heard the parable of the lost sheep. Okay, everybody who has been in church any length of time, even those people who maybe have never spent any time in church, maybe this is the first time you're listening to any kind of a message at all out of Scripture, you probably still have some sort of idea what the parable of the lost sheep was about. So it's not a a giant surprise. But the thing about the lost sheep, that sheep was just living life. Just live it, just living life, going from one enticing piece of grass to the next, a little, maybe a little patch of clover here, maybe some more grass over there, just living its life. It didn't intentionally wander off. It didn't rebelliously wander off. It didn't, it, you know, it didn't slam the door on its way out. It was just living life. And before it knew it, it stopped and realized, hey, where am I? I am no longer where I should be, and the shepherd is no longer in front of me where I can see him. Then, if you've ever spent any time around sheep or if you've ever heard anything or seen movies or anything, when, when sheep feel lost and they're frightened, they start bleeding. They are, they are loud. And they're, they're just, you can see this terror in their reaction to it. This sheep didn't plan to go anywhere. I think that's important for us to understand. It didn't plan. It wasn't thinking of the consequences of either staying in the safety of the shepherd or moving out on its own, the dangers of moving out on its own. It was just absorbed in its own life, just doing its own thing. It didn't really even know that it was lost until it realized that it was. The cool thing, though, 
is that the shepherd, just like Jesus, the shepherd in our parable, and the shepherd, if you know anything about shepherds, shepherds return the sheep to the flock knowing full well he'll probably have to do it again sometime soon. And then maybe again sometime soon. You don't return the sheep to the flock and go, okay, now he's learned his lesson. He's not going anywhere. It'll probably wander up, maybe even right then it will wander off again. But a good shepherd knows that that's not part of the equation. I will rescue that sheep and I will bring that sheep back to the flock as many times as I have to. And he never gets tired of it because that is the job of a good shepherd. And that's the same with Jesus. No matter how many times we get lost, praise Jesus, he is there to bring us right back. So that's the first parable. And Jesus is, you know, when Jesus is telling that parable, clearly he's illustrating himself as the good shepherd. And the second parable, the lost coin that we talked about last week, we see ourselves And if you're a follower of Christ, you are a part of the church. And so when I say ourselves, I'm talking about anyone, anywhere who says they're a follower of Jesus. We are the church. And we see ourselves, the church, illustrated in the woman who is searching for the lost coin. Now, whereas the sheep innocently, blindly, unintentionally wandered off and got lost, the coin was something valuable that had been entrusted to the care of this woman. And it was where it was supposed to be. It was right there until it wasn't. One day, she realized, or somebody pointed out, or somehow or another, she realized, oh my gosh, that precious thing that had been entrusted to my care through neglect or an accident or whatever happened is no longer where it belongs. So what she does is she lights a lamp, the lamp, representing the gospel of Jesus, the knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. And that light then illuminates everything. And then she takes the broom and she sweeps her house, trying to sweep away the dirt, which represents the sin in our lives. So the gospel message of Jesus helps to clear away that gospel message, or that, 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 that gospel message, is that gospel message that clears away the sin in our lives. Then, That coin, there it is. That thing that was lost is now visible. It's been wiped clean, and it can return to its rightful place. We see that, and then that illustrates, obviously, how God uses us, uses his people to return those things that were lost and bring them back to where they belong. So, as we get in, those are pretty straightforward messages when we talk about those first two. We get into this third parable then, and you might be just tempted to say, okay, it's more of the same, which can really be boiled down to, if you're looking for the Cliff Notes version, it could be something valuable was lost, then it was found, and then everybody was happy and happily ever after we lived. That's, you could boil it all down to that. And if that's all you took away, okay, there's value in that message, especially if you go the one step further and go, okay, it represents Jesus and his pursuit of us and the joy when we are found. But when we look at this third one, this third parable, it's called the parable of the lost son. A lot of times people just call it the parable of the prodigal son. That's not entirely accurate, and I'll tell you why here in just a few minutes. But the parable of the lost son, it's one of the most detailed and longest of all the parables that Jesus teaches. And I think that means something. It's significant. 
If we look at it, most parables are one or two pretty straightforward lessons. This has many lessons. So we're going to go through. And as I go through, I want to challenge you to listen to me or take notes or however you do it and see if you can pick out the individual lessons that are contained within the verses of the parable of the lost, uh, um, I'm sorry, the, the, the parable of the lost son. My mind just went blank. Anybody ever have that? Whew. Okay. Anyway, one of the most detailed. So I'll give you a hint, though. There are at least 10 and most likely several more, as you'll see. Let's get into it. Watch for those lessons, and I'll even make it easier. I'll tell you, here's the lesson as we go through. But there may be some additional ones that you can pull out. Uh, Luke 15, 11 and 12. This is, again, Jesus responding back to them. It's all just one long parable, uh, parable, series of parables that he tells. There's no break in between. And he said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that's coming to me. And so he divided his wealth between them. Very unusual for a son to demand his inheritance before dad is even dead. Okay, it's not that it didn't ever happen, but it was rare. Very, very rare. And especially if you're one of the Pharisees sitting in the crowd and Jesus is telling this story, you're immediately probably going, you can't do, that's not how it works. They were probably incensed to just even hearing that part. It was, would have been a scandalous demand, kind of on par with just saying, Dad, will you hurry up and die because I want my stuff so I can get on with my life. That's essentially what this son is saying to his dad right here. That share, by the way, his, his fair share would have been one-third of everything that dad owns. That's, that's laid out. If you want to read Deuteronomy 21, it talks about how that's all supposed to be divided up. But it would have been about a third of everything that dad had. The lesson in that is this. The father knew the son was making a terrible mistake. He knew the son was out of line in what he was asking for. But he loved him enough to give it to him anyway. He loved him enough to let him make a choice. Even knowing that's a bad decision you're making, son. He loved him enough to give him the choice to make that anyway, that freedom. Luke 15, 13, and not many days later, so in other words, it didn't take long after he received his inheritance, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey to a distant country, and there he squandered his estate in wild living. There's a lot to pick apart in that. Let's look at this. Number one, he didn't want any livestock he didn't want land. Okay, livestock and land, which is what the older of the two sons, the one that stayed behind, which is what he would have received, is renewable. Not only is it renewable, but it appreciates, right? Livestock can grow into more livestock. Land can appreciate in value. You can do things with it. This son didn't want any of that. He just wanted, give me cash. Give me gold. Give me the things I can take with me. And what do we know about cash and gold and those sorts of, other than you can invest gold and it appreciates, not with the way he was going to use it. He's just going to go spend it. So it's just going to disappear. Eventually, it will come to an end. And this is exactly what he sees here, only what he can carry. Now, let's go back to the word prodigal. When it says 
wild living, squandered his estate in wild living. That word, wild living, in my translation, some translations say living prodigally. And the word means the same thing. It's a Greek word, asotos, and it means wastefully or prodigal living. And essentially what that boils down to is extravagantly wasteful. So when we say the prodigal son, a lot of times in our minds, we just go, the lost son. That's just, but prodigal and lost don't mean the exact same thing. But what it does literally mean is living wastefully. In other words, those resources that the father gave him, he squandered them. He didn't use them in a way that was either glorifying to his father or setting up his future or doing anything of any good with them, but he squandered it living wastefully. Luke 15, 14. And when he had spent everything... Oh, wait. The lesson. I want you to catch this. I'll recap it later. The lesson to that part, the gifts of the Father are eternal. But we often trade them for instant gratification in the here and now. And we squander that opportunity to use what the Father has blessed us with to bless others and for a much greater purpose. All right, so that's the lesson there. Luke 15, 14. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began doing without. It's noteworthy there that the famine occurred in the entire country. It's not just he found himself on hard times, and therefore he can rely on the other people to support him. The whole country, there was a famine. Everybody was dealing with hard times. We actually know this that later, at the time this was taught, there had been numerous small famines here and there. But very shortly after this, within 10 years, in fact, of when Jesus taught this, there would be a severe famine. It was actually during the reign of Claudius Caesar, less than 10 years later. If you want to read about that, read Acts 11.28. The prophet Agabus actually predicted that there would be a severe famine in the land, and it absolutely absolutely came true and happened. But here's the point. The son held nothing in reserve. He just spent it all thinking there'll be more tomorrow and there will never be an end to it. The lesson there is very straightforward. The idea of saving for a rainy day is wise. If you read Proverbs 21, Proverbs 21.20 says, you're wise if you do, a fool if you don't. I'm paraphrasing. But there are many Proverbs that talk about that. Saving for a rainy day is wise. Let's move on. Luke 15, 15. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. And when he sent him into the fields, and then he sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he longed to have his fill of the carob pods that the pigs were eating. And no one was giving him anything. Again, noteworthy that no one was helping him out because Everybody was dealing with a famine. Here he is, though. The only job he can get, the only thing he can do to even just try and survive is feeding pigs. Now, if you're a Jew at the time, even now, feeding pigs was one of the most degrading jobs you could have. Pigs were considered unclean. But that's all he could do. He had to do it to survive. No one could help him. Now, it also says he wanted to eat the pig's food. He longed to have his fill of the carob pods. Have you ever seen a carob pod? Let me show you just for those of you who learn visually. That's what a pile of carob pods looks like. They are 
They are dry and they are hard and they are crunchy and they're, they're far from chewy. Here's what they look like on the vine. They look like that. A little bit more juicy until they dry up. And you can manufacture them and you can process them and do things with carapods. But these carapods, they were suitable for, for food for the swine because they can eat anything. There's protein, there's nutrition in them. But a human being could not eat them. So when it says he longed to, he could have reached down and grabbed one and, and chewed on it. But a human just can't process and get anything out of it. The lesson to learn from that section right there is the depths of despair. Picture this guy. It's the only job he can get. It's degrading. He's look at the, looking at the pigs eating and going, I wish I, wish I could even do that. He's probably mucking around in all, the, in all the slop and just wishing. When you're in the depths of despair, there's nowhere else that you can look but up. That's our lesson. Luke 15, 17. But when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired laborers have more than enough bread? But I'm dying here from hunger. Some translations, instead of saying came to his senses, they say came to himself. I think that's a little bit more of an illustration of what's happening here, meaning when he woke up from his delusion of what was going on around him, his delusion that everything's going to be okay and will sort itself out and I'll go back to my, to my wild living again, whatever delusion he was living under, he came to himself and he realized who he was, who he really was, who his father was. And he said, even, my, even the laborers that work for my father have it better than this. The unsaid part is how much more so than me, his son, would I be entitled to? The lesson there, knowing our true identity, not who our circumstances say we are, is the first step in true repentance. We see him go on to truly repent. Luke 15, 18 to 19. I will set out and go to my father, and I will say to him, he's planning what he's going to say to his dad, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired laborers. See, he knew, he knew the gravity of the sin that he had committed here, pride and arrogance and extravagant living, all these things led him to that place, and he knew that he was going to have to repent. Humility is a big part of that. Proverbs 3, James 4, 1 Peter 5, and many more all talk about God giving grace towards the humble. The lesson there is once the illusion of pride is replaced by true repentance and humility, that opens the door then to full restoration. That's what we see happening here in the coming verses. Luke 15, 20. So he set out and came to his father. I love, I love this part, so listen to this. So he set out and came to his father, but when he was still a long way off, okay, I immediately picture every movie I've ever seen about anybody who's lost and comes home where all fathers who lose a child live on a ranch or a farm or something with at least a mile of dirt road that leads into it, right? And you look down in the, in the distance and you see this little dot and that's your loved one coming home, right? So that's the scene that I have in my mind. So he set off and came to his father. But when he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Listen to this. He didn't have, he prepared a speech. He didn't have time to say a speech. And 
his father's love and excitement and joy at the return of his son wasn't dependent on his speech. He didn't come and fall to his knees and say, please forgive me, Father, I'll do anything you want me to do. And Father said, well, all right, if you slop the pigs and do stuff, I'll give you. It was none of that. The father was clearly waiting for his son's return. He was clearly waiting because the minute he was still a long way off, the father didn't go, I wonder who that is. Send somebody down and go see. He knew this is the day that I've been praying for. My lost son, he's here and he has come and he immediately is filled with joy and runs out to get him. It's not dependent on, we have to talk about the mistakes you've made first. He is immediately joyful before he even has a chance to open his mouth. My son has returned. He didn't even make it all the way home. He wasn't coming on a chariot with fine robes and an entourage and this big fanfare. I picture him just wearing the rags and the dirty clothes that he fed pigs in. Father didn't care about that at all. My son has back. And his joy, the father's joy, began long before the son ever said a word. I love that. The lesson there, you don't need to clean yourself up first. You don't need to clean yourself up first. You don't even need to be all the way home yet. The Father's joy at your return begins the minute you decide you are going to return. I love that part. Luke 15, 21. I love the next part too, so stay with me. Luke 15, 21. And the Son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your Son. Now remember, that's the thing that he decided. That's the speech that he was going to give to his father. How many of us, though, when we play over in our minds what we're going to say to somebody that, that we're going to ask for forgiveness or we're going to repent, and you get in front of them, if they would have immediately said, look, I, it doesn't matter what you say, I forgive you already. How many of us, I'll be the first to say, well, I'm just going to take that speech and I'm going to fold it up again and put it back in my pocket because I don't need to repent. I don't need to lay my heart out. They've already forgiven me. He knows the lesson here. The Father's unconditional love does not eliminate our need to repent. The Father will love you unconditionally and with full joy. That does not eliminate our need to repent. Luke 15, 22 to 24. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, slaughter it and let's eat it and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Remember, no, there's a lot of things to learn from that. The father didn't say, well, it's about time. I knew you would. I knew you'd come to your senses. It was only a matter of time. None of that. But what he does say is bring him out three gifts. Do you catch what the gifts are? A robe, a ring, and sandals. Okay? Then they had the calf, and they, and they ate, and they feasted. The robe, the ring, and the sandals are significant, though. Here's what they represent. The robe was given to a guest of honor. Okay? So not only was he welcomed back into the family, he was, he was honored. And he was, he was immediately given that robe, not go take a shower, clean yourself up, and once you're ready, then we'll go ahead and we'll dress. He immediately gave him this fine robe. The ring, the ring is a universal symbol of authority in those times. And it said, you, 
you have always had, and here again is a, is a visible symbol that anybody can see of your authority as my son. And then the last part, the sandals. The sandals weren't worn by servants, okay? It generously calls them servants, and some of them might have been paid, but most likely they were probably slaves. And they didn't get paid for their work, and they didn't certainly get sandals for their feet. Most likely they were just barefoot all the time. The sandals immediately signified a full reconciliation and a full welcome back into his rightful place in that family. So those three gifts, very significant. You are and always have been my son. You have always had authority here. And no one or no circumstance can take that away. And here are the sandals. You are where you belong. The message there, the lesson, the Father's blessing are not dependent on our earning it, only on his grace. Luke 15, 25, 26. Now, his older son was out in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. Get this, the older son now, in the rest of this parable here, the older son represents the Pharisees and the scribes who are sitting there in judgment over the story that Jesus is telling. So there's a direct correlation right there. This older son was just doing his thing. He was out in the field. He was doing what he's supposed to be doing. He might have even been feeding the pigs at that time. We don't know. He was out in the field working, doing the stuff that he was required to do, doing the stuff that he was supposed to do, and he was not looking for the return of the lost. He was just busily working on his thing. His eyes weren't open or even hopeful or even thinking about the return of the lost. In his mind, I'm here. I'm where I belong. This is all mine. And that's as far as he looked. So when he started hearing this, this party going on, he didn't even, how many of us, we would just rush in. Like, what's going on? We'd rush into the house. But he must be suspecting something's going on because he asks, what is this that's happening? He starts to, he doesn't even go in. The lesson there, the quick lesson to take away from that part is this, being physically near to the Father. Okay, so the Pharisees in that example, they spent all day every day praying. They spent all day every day studying scriptures. They spent their lives surrounded by and enforcing the law and the things of God were very, very present in a part of their life. To us, that would look like being in church, praying, reading our devotionals, quiet time with God. But here's what it means. Just surrounding yourself with those things doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to reflect his heart. That's what the son is. The son never left. The son never left the side of the father, but he was so busy doing the things he thought he was supposed to do. And many of them were necessary, yes. But he was wrapped up in that, and he was not expecting anybody to come in that was lost. It just wasn't where his brain was. Luke 15, 27. And he said to him, this is the servant replying back, your brother has come, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. His response Rather than to be excited and rush in the house, Luke 15, 28. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. 
And his father came out and began pleading with him. His father had to come out and beg him to come inside and join the party, much as Jesus is doing with the Pharisees and the scribes right here. He's telling them, look, it's right in front of you. Luke 15, 29, 30. But he answered. This is the son answering back. But he answered and he said to his father, look, for so many years I have been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you never gave me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. First of all, this son of yours, he can't even say his name, or my brother, or anything. It's this son of yours. You can just hear the contempt in his voice. But this older son, again, representing the Pharisees who were listening, they were so much more concerned with fairness. What's my reward for doing everything the right way? They were so concerned with that that his response was anger that someone could receive anything without working for it like he did. The lesson out of this is straight out of Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9. Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Luke 15, 31, 32, and he said to him, it's the last, last verses of this section, and he said to him, son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost, and has been found. But this older brother couldn't see it. The Pharisees couldn't see it, surrounded by the things of God every day, speaking to Jesus right now. And they couldn't see the treasure that was right in front of them, if only they could accept it. They were so focused on their own righteousness and their own, what I have done to earn this, that they couldn't see what Jesus was offering them right there. So in conclusion, so that's it for the scriptures. Let me recap. I'm going to go recap. How many, how many lessons individually did anybody pick out? There are more than I actually mentioned. Get that number in your head. We're going to go through because there's even more than I'm going to talk about here. But I'm going to do a quick recap. Number one, the father knew the son was making a bad choice, but let him be free to make it. Number two, the gifts of the Father are eternal, but we so often trade them for instant material gratification, wasting our opportunity to use them for a greater purpose. Number three, very straightforward, saving for a rainy day is wise. Number four, the depths of despair force us to look up. Number five, knowing our true identity, not who our circumstances say we are, is the first step in repentance. Number six, true repentance must come from within. It can't be forced. Number seven, once the illusion of pride is replaced by humility, the door opens to restoration. Number eight, you don't need to clean yourself up first or even be all the way home yet. The Father begins rejoicing the minute you decide to return to him. 
Number nine, the Father's unconditional love does not eliminate our need to repent. Number 10, the Father's blessings are not dependent on our earning it, only on his grace. Number 11, being physically near to the Father, meaning praying in church, doing the right things, does not necessarily mean that you're going to reflect his heart. Number 12, the self-righteous attitude of the found against the lost is not righteous at all. That's something that the Pharisees would never learn. 13, there should be no sense of entitlement as a reward for having stayed on the path. Number 14, the father eagerly awaits the return of the lost and will joyously celebrate every precious child who returns. The best one of all, as I was praying how to put this together, I feel like the Lord gave me one even better lesson that incorporates all of these other things, but it's not explicit in the Scripture. But you put it together, and here it is. Even the sinner who makes not one, but a series of bad choices, some accidental not thinking, some actually totally rebellious and intentional, even that sinner can repent and return to a joyful father at any time. No sinner is too far gone for Jesus to welcome them home. Amen? Should get an amen. There's one more scripture I want to share with you. Our Father in heaven sent his son Jesus into this sinful world to find the lost and to save them. Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your son, Jesus, your heart is relentless in the pursuit of those who are lost. Whether we are lost by ignorance, we simply wander away. Whether we are lost out of lack of care, whether we are pushed away, or whether we intentionally leave. We intentionally rebel and walk away from you. Father God, you are relentless in your pursuit of the lost. And I thank you, Lord, that I count myself among the lost. I count myself uh, uh, as one of those reluctant sheep who wanders away and has to be returned to the flock time and time again. Lord, I thank you for all the times you put me on your shoulders and brought me back. I praise you for all the times that you will do it in the future when I need it. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for all that he is. We thank you for who you are. Your grace and mercy abound. Let us not ever take that for granted. Father, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, we're going to go, church, into communion time. When you look at the stories, the parables that we've just heard, it's all about Jesus pursuing us. It's all about our Lord God, the creator of heavens and earth, doing nothing or stopping at nothing, that is, to return you to where you need to be, to your rightful place. And Jesus Christ, his one and only son, giving himself on the cross for you.
accomplished that. We are reconciled to the Father. We don't need to work for it. It's there for us. And so when we take communion, we are aligning ourselves with that, saying, Lord, I recognize what your son Jesus did for me. I accept what he did for me. And I will live my life in a way that is honoring for his sacrifice. And if I fail tomorrow, then he will pick me up and carry me back to the flock and I'll have a chance to do it again. That's what we align ourselves with when we take communion. So the way we do it here at the crosses, we have juice and bread and gluten-free crackers and you can just dip and serve yourself or serve your family. Up front here, Gabe and I have wine and bread and crackers and we would serve you up here. But let's do this. As we enjoy worship together, let's just have thankful hearts and not only thankful hearts for what was accomplished on the cross, but let's say I stand in agreement that I will accept that sacrifice and it will change how I live my life. Amen? Thank you, church.